The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Thank you, Dan. Good morning. As we continue the book of James, we will find ourselves in still chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 2 through 12 today. So let's take a piece of prayer. Father, we thank you for that we're able to come before you today and worship. We thank you for the way you have provided us for the, throughout this week. Uh, we thank you the way you've comforted us in sorrow and rejoiced with us in the time of happiness. I ask at this time that you open our hearts, our minds to your word in this time. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me to chapter 1 of James, the book of James. We're going to be looking at verses 2 to 12. So last week we introduced the book of James and we looked at the person of James, who James was, and um, what he was all about. We talked about the people of James, who he was writing to, who were the Jews scattered, and why they were scattered. And we talked about the point of James, which was the problem of spiritual immaturity. So he continues in verse 2 and says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but but the rich in his humiliation because as a flower of the field he passes away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat that it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So there are three kinds of people today that will hear this message, and as you sit there in the pew, you will fall into one of these categories, those that are in the trial currently, and today you're going through difficulties or there's some troubles in your life. Second group will be those that are exiting a trial. You're exiting trial, you're finally broken free and finally got to breathe and you're getting some relief. And the third group is for those that are about to enter a trial. You just don't know it yet. Maybe this sermon will be a trial for you. So there's a word here for everyone. There's a lot, a lot that we can say, but I'm going to focus on three things today. The purpose of trials, how we persevere, or how do we deal with trials, and then what's the profit, what's the benefit from these trials. So we'll stick to three things today, but I want to address that there is a common misconception about the Christian life. Just like when James wrote it, and today, there's the idea that the person gives their life to Christ, they will never have any more troubles. Your best life now, right? 
You'll never have any heartaches, any troubles, any difficulties. Everything's going to be bed of roses. Well, the Christian life is not a bed of roses. And the Bible teaches us that believers are a special people, but they're not sheltered people. Matter of fact, that James was writing to scattered people. Why? We talked about it last week, about persecutions mostly. And we also need to understand that problems, difficulties, heartaches come to the people of God just as much as they come to those that do not know the Lord as their personal Savior. It's, it, nobody's excluded. Job in 5.7 says, Yet man is born in trouble as sparks fly upward. Trouble is unavoidable in life. If you're alive, you're going to have trouble. But also we need to understand that all suffering is not physical. Some of the worst is mental, emotional suffering as well. Because it comes with this human dilemma we have of sin. So trouble, circumstances, tribulations, difficulties, it's a very broad term that he uses here. It could be applied to a number of things. That's why he calls it various trials. Jesus said in John 16, 33, These things I've spoken to you that you may, you, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulations. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus is telling you that. He says you will have tribulations in this life. Bank on it. You will. You know, so any leader or any preacher, teacher, missionary that says, Come to Christ. Leave all your troubles behind. Come to Christ, no more headaches. Come to Christ, no more family struggles. Come to Christ, no more illness. Come to Christ, you'll have the best cars, keys to a Cadillac, BMW. Come to Christ, you'll have the best clothes, Louis Vuitton bags. If you hear any of that, they're lying. They're lying, and they don't read the Bible, and especially the book of James. James says, when you encounter... So it's not an issue of if, it's when. So if you're going through a tough time, don't be surprised. If uh, your life is crashing down on you at this moment, don't be shocked. It comes with this thing called life. Everyone who lives in this world endures some measure of trouble. As I said before, it's the consequence of the fall. And God's own children are not exempt. There will be trouble related to the best things that God gives us. It is said, children are a gift of God. Any of you go through any trials, tribulations with your kids, especially teenage years? I know my parents did. Our little angels, as their feet get a little bit longer, their wings get a little shorter, all kinds of problems. Christian can expect it because of their faith as well. Jesus said in John 15, 20, he said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Servant, if we're his servants, we're not greater than his master. He went through tribulation. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my, kept my word, they will keep yours also. Any of you desire to live a Christian life or godly life? Does anyone have that desire? Well, Paul was, was truthful about the Christmas, Christian life with Timothy when he wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In his book, uh, it's called The Christian, uh, Secret of Christian Joy, Vince Hefner said this, Let it not be forgotten that a twice-born, spirit-filled Christian 
is always a contradiction to this old world. He crosses it at every point. From the day that he is born again until he passes on to be with the Lord, he pulls against the current of the world forever going the other way. The real fireband is distressing to the devil. And when a wide awake believer comes along, taking the gospel seriously, we can expect sinister maneuvering for his downfall. A child of God will face trials in this life. Christian life is not always smooth sailing. And whoever is committed to the Lord will face opposition. Peter agreed with James, and when he wrote in 1 Peter 4.12, it says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. He's saying this is nothing new. Don't be surprised. And Paul writes to 2 Corinthians 4.8, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Trials are not uncommon to believers. Heard a young man who was taking a test at a college, and he made a zero. And he went to a professor and argued with the professor, and he said, Professor, I don't think I deserve a zero. The professor said, neither do I. But that was the lowest grade I had. So maybe some of us are failing in our lives just as miserably. Maybe we're failing just as miserably. So, and I hope today we'll learn how to make an A-plus when we get trials in our life. Now, just to want to make clear, God never flunks you. If you fail in the trial, God never flunks you. He just re-enrolls you. And trust me, you're going to get tired before He does. So, what's the purpose of trials? Let's look at James verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect word, that, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And I want to clarify this word perfect again. It doesn't mean that you're sinless. It simply means mature. An oak tree, it is said, is a maturity of an acorn. And I was planting some trees yesterday, and I saw a little oak tree, and it reminded me of these words. It said, uh, when you're discouraged and feeling a little blue, take a look what a mighty oak and see what a nut can do. It's maturity. It means maturity. We grow under stress. The purpose in troubles, trials in your life, is that you may be. God wants you to become something. God has intention in mind when you have trials. Trouble is God's pruning knife to make you the flower He wants you to be. God's trouble is, is furnace to burn away all the impurities to help you be that per vessel He wants you to be. Now, we must admit, God is a strange teacher. He's a strange teacher. He gives, us the, he gives us the test first and then the lesson afterward. But we all face tests in life. And I want to give you five reasons. There's lots of reasons. Why does He do it? Number one is to test our faith. In many ways... Lord will assist us in taking spiritual inventory by bringing trials into our lives to demonstrate us our strengths and weaknesses of our faith. So whenever you're going through a trial, God is putting your faith on the witness stand to testify. God told Moses in Exodus 16.4, says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain from bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whenever they will walk in my law or not. God is testing them with a blessing. 
He's given a quota. That I'm going to do this, but I'm also going to test you. In Deuteronomy 13, 1-3, it says, if, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or a wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, let's go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. It says, you shall not listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to, to know whenever you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Well, why does God, doesn't he already know? We're told uh, about King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles. We read this. However, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon who came sent him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land. Look what God did. God withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know all that is in his heart. God already knew. But he wants the king to see and find out for himself. So, to test our faith, number two is to humble us, to remind us not let our trust in the Lord uh, turn into some presumption of spiritual satisfaction because Satan will tempt us to look at our own, like our lifely accomplishments in our life as our own accomplishments rather than the Lord's and to become rather proud than humble. In 2 Corinthians, Paul testifies, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, unless I should be exalted above measure, abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. There's a lot of, you know, explanation what that is. But the thing is, Paul knew what it was. It was for Paul to. Why? So he doesn't become proud. Because Paul's day, he had lots of reasons to be proud. He was very highly educated and you know, Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew everything in and out of the, Christ, uh, of the Jewish laws. But God says, humble yourself. None of that matters. So that to humble us. So now if, the, if, if troubles come in our lives and uh, God allows suffering to, to wean us from dependence on these worldly things, the, the third reason would be to rely on God, not on yourself. The more we accumulate material possessions and these worldly knowledge, experience, recognition, the more we are tempted to rely on them instead of Lord. I'll be honest with you, when I was dirt poor, I, I, you know, and I did my confessions with the Lord, I, I was more reliant on God. I, my prayer life was a lot more stronger than it, than it was when I was in the good times. And I catch myself doing that. And I say, why? It's human nature to rely on the worldly things. But when I was just eating hot dogs and ramen noodles, I had nobody to support but the Lord. But now eating steak, why is that? That's what James is talking about. The things that can include education, it can include work success, it can include important people we know. We throw out names. I know so-and-so. Honors may be given to us. Now, the worldly benefits that often, they're not wrong in themselves, but they can easily become a focus of our concern and basis for our trust rather than the Lord. Remember, Jesus asked Philip in John 6, 5 through 7, says, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming toward him, and said, Philip, where shall we buy bread that they, these may eat? But this he said to test him. 
for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not, worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. 200 bucks is not even enough to buy all the bread, but they can have a little. Philip looked only at their material resources, which obviously were far short of being able to meet them instead of trusting in the Lord to provide. The fourth thing is to reveal to us what we really love. The story of Abraham, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac not only proved his faith, as we'll discuss later in this chapter, but it also proved his supreme love for the Lord. Nothing and no one should be dearer to us more than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Emma 5, to strengthen us. Trials are for our endurance. You know, when things are quiet and comfortable, we live by sense rather than faith. But it is said the worth of a soldier is never known in times of peace. And Franklin Roosevelt, I believe, said that a smooth sea never made a skilled sailor. I was drinking tea this morning, and I was looking at my glass, and I was put the bag in there, and it was getting darker and darker. came to a conclusion that Christians are kind of like tea bags. You don't know how strong they are until you put them in hot water. There's constant pressure that keeps us close to God. Paul confessed in 2 Corinthians 12.10, he said, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reapproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. In Hebrews 11.33-34, it is said, who, thought, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Our weaknesses were made strong. Came billion in battle, turned to flight the armies of the alien. Now I want to tell you, if trials and tests in life are there for your endurance. They keep you going. They keep you trusting in the Lord. They keep you praying. And they keep relying. Since trials are so productive, it is very essential for us that we respond to them the right way. And James here gives us five reasons or at least I'm going to talk about five reasons, how to properly respond to trials. How do we persevere through trials? Number one is joyful attitude. In James 1, 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. This is a command because joy is not a natural response to trouble. And Christians are a divine command, not so simply somewhat joyful, or don't confuse this with happiness, some for joyful trials, but we upon them with all joy. We are not just to act joyful in a reluctant presence, but genuinely have joyful inside of us. It is, it is a matter of will. It's not feelings. It's a conscious, determined commitment of every believer. The more we rejoice in our testings, the more we realize that it's not liabilities, but privileges, and ultimately beneficial and not harmful. No matter how destructful or painful something that we're going through right now. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Even the Lord endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Looking unto Jesus, the author in Hebrews 12, 2, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy 
that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down on the right hand of God, throne of God. He looked beyond the trial. Anybody seen the movie, The Passion of Christ? Any of you can give me a scene where Jesus was joyful during this time? But here it says, for the joy that was set before him. So he looked beyond the trial, the joy that he knew would be his when the trial was over and he'd accomplished the glorious work it was divinely ordained to accomplish. So we've got to look beyond the trial. God, what is it that you want me to do? What is it that you're trying to teach? And you see, Warren Risby just three days ago went to be with the Lord. He wrote this. Our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy if we live only for the present and forget the future. The trials will make us bitter, not better. You see, if you're a Christian and you cannot rejoice in trials, your values are not godly and they're not biblically. So when trials come, James says, count it all joy. Give thanks to the Lord. Adopt a joyful attitude. And like he said, outlook determines outcome. So to end with joy, you must begin with joy. Second means is to have an understanding mind. And James 1.3 says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And a lot of people fail because they don't know. Knowing. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So we have a definite purpose about trials. Here we're told that trials have a definite purpose. They produce patience. That's endurance. So when you're praying to God and saying, God, give me patience or give me endurance, and don't be scared to pray that way, but be ready to have something to endure. See, endurance in the Bible is frequently translated as patience, but here implies more of a product or consequence of patience, which is endurance. Patiently enduring trials, trusting the Lord, develops endurance. It's a lasting quality. It's a lasting quality. See, patience is only needed as long as the affliction or the Trouble is present. So when that goes away, patience is no longer has a purpose. But endurance is a permanent inner quality of strength which increases each time a trial is patiently and trustingly endured. Wise men said the bumps are what you climb on. So blessed is the man who makes stepping stones out of stumbling stones. It's not in the Bible, but. but David testified and said this. Look with me in Psalm 40, verses 1 through 2. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. Now, it doesn't say that God was there right away. He waited patiently on me. God let him be in a trial for a while. But then he says, he also brought me out of this horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon the rock, and established my feet. And not only that, Romans 5.3 says, and not only that, 
but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. It's a very important quality to have, endurance and perseverance. Paul writes to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, 3-4, to says he's bragging about this church to other Christians. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. So they're growing. Their love is growing. Their faith is growing. So that we ourselves boast of you among churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So this church obviously knew how to handle anything that comes at them. They endured. It was because of their trials that their endurance was increased and strengthened. And their faith and love in God were also increased. The third we means is a surrendered will. James 1.4 says, But let the patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The only way out of a trial, you ready for this? Is through it. The only way out of the trial is through it. Lord promises no bypasses, only that he will always will see his people through the trials without their suffering and spiritual harm. You may be suffering physical, but not spiritual harm. But God cannot do his complete work without, through us without our willing submissiveness. So apart from the ordeal that Jesus endured on the cross, I think the severest one of the trials that I find in the Bible for me uh, by any human being was that of Abraham when God called him to sacrifice his son. Lord commanded him and said in Genesis 22:2, said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Morah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. The reason I'm saying that is Abraham, for several reasons, could have been completely astounded by this demand. Not only uh, was Isaac greatly loved, and he was the only son of Sarah, and therefore he was the son of God's promise uh, for all families of earth to be blessed, from the human perspective, the death of Isaac would clearly prevent the promise from being fulfilled and nullify any kind of covenant that God had. Not only that, but the human sacrifice was pagan. It was completely opposite of the God Abraham knew, who a holy God and just God that he served. Not only that, then Abraham has to kill Isaac by his own hand. If there's ever a Lord command that should have been kind of like, hey, I need an explanation, or can you give me at least a little bit what's going on? It was this. But Abraham made no argument. He asked for no explanation. Without hesitation, resentment, or question, Abraham made the necessary preparations and began the journey, as the Bible says, in the first light of the day. And then in Genesis 22, 12, God says, He said, do not lay your hand on the lad. Or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And because of this unreserved, unconditional, submissive faith, which Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son, God counted him righteous. Read in Romans 4.3. 
For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was accounted him for righteousness. Same words in Galatians 3.6. Just as Abraham believed God and was accounted him for righteousness. So sometimes things don't make sense. But we still have to submit. The fourth means is to believe in heart. Verses 5-8 through eight in James. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives all liberally and without reapproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubt, doubting, for, one, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, James has a great deal to say about wisdom here in this book. And Jewish people were lovers of wisdom, and that's why James is compared to a book of Proverbs. And someone said that, Knowledge is the ability to take things apart. Wisdom is the ability to put them together. Any of you know these brilliant academic people that have brilliant academic records, but they can't make the simplest decision in life? Wisdom does not mean knowledge. Just because you acquired a great deal of information, just because you know how to do a lot of things, does not necessarily mean you have wisdom. You can have the knowledge to go faster than sound, but you need wisdom to know which way to go. You may have the knowledge how to make a living, but you may not have wisdom how to make a life. So when believers face times of testing, whether it's physical, emotional, moral, spiritual, there's a special need of God's wisdom. And we should, I remember the words of Solomon in Proverbs 3, 5, 7 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Why do we need wisdom when we're going through trials? We need wisdom so we will not waste the opportunities God has given us to mature spiritually. To earn dividends from trial, we need wisdom. Not just any wisdom, but divine wisdom. Proverbs 4, 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and all you're getting, get understanding. Wisdom is the correct use of knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to apply Bible to your everyday life. We need wisdom. Wisdom helps us understand how to use circumstances for our good and God's glory. So where do we get this wisdom? Job had some trials in his life, didn't he? Look what Job said in Job 28.12. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Then in 28.13, he says, man does not know its value, nor it's found in the land of the living. Then if you drop down to verse 15, 28.15, it says, it cannot be purchased for gold nor silver, be weight for its price. So Job begins to search in this 28th chapter where to find wisdom. And he comes to verse 28 and says, and, the man, and to the man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord that is wisdom, and depart from evil is understanding. It's kind of very similar to what we just read in Proverbs 3.7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. How? Fear the Lord and depart from evil. 
There's a source of wisdom, and there's only one place to get true wisdom. The Bible says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. It is God who is the source of wisdom. Knowledge comes from looking around. Wisdom comes from looking up. In 1 Timothy 1.7, it says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, spiritual commodities are obtained from spiritual sources. If you need grace in your life, the Bible says God is all grace. You need to go God to get all grace. If you need peace in your life, the Bible says that God is the God of peace. You have to go to God to get peace. If you need wisdom, the Bible says God is the only wise, only wise God. God has a monopoly on wisdom. If you need wisdom in your daily life and there's a decision that you're facing now, the Bible says you have to come to God. But here's the trick. James not only explained where to ask, but he's telling us how to ask for wisdom. How do we ask? We are to ask in faith. The Lord requires the right kind of asking, and we must be in faith without any doubting. In James 1.6 it says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, requests might be backed. Your request needs to be backed by this genuine faith that, that God's character, you need to trust in God's character, purposes, and promises. See, a believer that doubts, he's like a wave. His request is not really a request at all. It's kind of like, doesn't really believe they will be honored by God. James says, do not let that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord in James 1.7. He's like ancient Israel. I think Mike preached on this and he read from 1 Kings of 18.21. And Elijah came to all people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If I all follow, follow Him. But people answered Him not a word. In Revelation, we read about lukewarm Christians. Same thing. The Odysseans, sham Christians. They're neither hot or cold. In Revelation 3.16, So then, because you're lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So James simplifies all this. And in verse 8 says, He is a double-minded man, unstable all, all his ways. Although he claims to be a believer, his actions say that he's an unbeliever. When he goes through trials, he turns to personal resources, people, instead of first coming to God and letting, allowing God to use people to help him. He doesn't pray. He doesn't say, God, can you help me? And the fifth one, fifth means perseveres, is a humble spirit. We live in a society where money talks, unfortunately. So James, in James 1, 9 through 11, addresses the lowly brother first. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat that it withers the grass, its flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. So as I mentioned, 
He addresses the lowery brother here first, the Christian who is economically poor. However, this believer was to glory in his position, meaning his status. The world may reject him or consider him filth or scum of the world, like it says in 1 Corinthians 4.13, being defamed, we entreated, we have been made as filth of the world, offscoring of all things until now, but in God's eyes he is exalted. Why? Well, he may be hungry, but he has the bread of life. He may be thirsty, but he has the water of life. He may be poor, he has eternal riches. He may be cast aside, but he has been internally received by God. He may have no home here on earth, but we all have a glorious home in heaven. Speaking of homes, not in the script, but I'll share it anyway. I went to a business meeting once when I was very young, just started out in, in management, and my boss took me to uh, Bell South at the time down in Georgia, and they were signing some contracts. And I don't know how it happened, but I was left there by bigwigs, and my part was just to observe the meeting, just kind of educational for me. And I don't know how it happened, but it was, it was just me and the bigwigs, and they were talking about their vacation homes, and they have this home Florida, this house here, and all of a sudden I'm in the conversation telling them, oh yeah, I have two homes in Ohio, I got some land in Israel, and after the meeting, <laughs> my boss says, hey, uh, you broke rule number one, never lie to clients, because then they'll expect you to take them to their place once in a while, and, and I said, well, I wasn't really lying, I do have two homes in, in Ohio, my first home is the smaller home I mentioned, which is where me and my wife live, my second home, where my family gathers on, on, on a weekly basis, is my church home, that's my church family, my land in Israel that I'm going to retire is my heavenly home. Friend, do you want to know how rich you are? Add up all the things that money can buy and death can't take away. That's how rich you are. That's how rich you are in Christ. As followers of Christ, we belong to heavenly realm. We are great worth to God. Money might be tight. We might not have the best houses. But Jesus made it very clear in Luke 12, 15, says... For one's life does not consist in the abundance of these of things he possesses. We are his children and we should rejoice because we have, in 1 Peter, what do we have in 1 Peter 1.4? To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You have a safety, safety deposit box in heaven. That's why... For Paul could say in Romans 8, 16 through 18, he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, all suffer? Yes, suffer with him, that we also be glorified together. For I consider that suffering in this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. So looking past the trial looking past the trial. Rather than dealing with trials by focusing on our lack and what we don't have, let us be thankful for all we do have in Christ. Then James presents the other side of the principle. Just as he's materially poor, believers should rejoice in his spiritual riches. Materially a rich man should glory in his humiliation. Let me read again James 1 through 9 and 11. 
Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he passes away. For no sooner he has sun risen with a burning heat, it withers the grass, the flower falls, and the beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Because man, including believers, have a natural tendency to trust material things, James gives special attention to the dangers of wealth. He explains how temporary they are, emphasizing the danger of trusting in them. And he adds, For no sooner is the sun risen in burning heat that it withers the grass, the flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. We say April showers bring May flowers, but come May, the deer come around and eat all my flowers. It just fades away. I didn't even get to enjoy them. And Paul writes to Timothy in 6.17, 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be hoggy, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now, is it wrong to be rich? Let me clarify this. Absolutely not. Many biblical characters in the Bible were rich. But the rich man must keep proper perspective on the money. And James here is trying to tell us that we're not to look down on the rich or look down on the poor. What he's saying is the poor man is exalted. The rich man is brought down. The idea is our relationship in Christ brings us all to the same level. The ground level is at the cross. The poor brother forgets all his earthly poverty. The rich brother forgets his old earthly riches. The two are equals by faith in Christ. See, when you lose a daughter, a loved one, son, husband, wealth is no comfort. When you lose your health, when you're betrayed by a friend, money cannot buy you a peace of mind or decrease your pain. Trials are the great equalizer, bringing all God's children dependence on Him, regardless of your status. And we'll deal with partiality later. So we talked about the purpose of trials. We talked about how to persevere in trials. And it brings me to my final point. What's the profit of trials? James 1.12 says this, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now in here, when explained the word temptation, it means trials. James will use that term interchangeably, but we have to look at the context. So we'll deal with temptations, temptations next week. But James closes this section and says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. That is a great encouragement because it promises a crown to those who have patiently endured trials. He is not saying a sinner is saved by enduring trials. He's not saying believer, he's saying his believer is rewarded by enduring trials. How? How is he rewarded? First, by growth in Christian character. Remember the church Paul was bragging about? He's also rewarded by also bringing glory to God and being granted a crown of life when Jesus Christ returns. I heard a young man who decided he would take on the town checker champion. Anybody play checkers? I do because not too smart to play chess. But he started playing the champion, and he made the move, and the champion said, 
jump me. So he jumped him. Then he made another move. The champion said, jump me. And he jumped him. He was feeling good going against the champion. Then the champion made another move, and he said, jump me. He jumped him. Then all of a sudden, the champion said, crown me. The young man learned his lesson. A good checker player doesn't mind giving up a few pieces when you're headed for the crown. The troubles of life may take a few pieces along the way, but when the battle is over and the troubles are ended, God said, you love me, you serve me faithfully, here's your crown of life. God does not help us by removing the tests or by making tests work or somehow, you know, make them easy. We have to remember tests, Satan uses them to bring us down. And we'll talk about that, that when you fail in trial, it could turn into a temptation. But God uses them to build you up, build your character. And James here in the last verse used a very important word, love. I would expect him to say those who get a crown of life would trust him or obey him. But he says, love. Why love? Because love is the spiritual motivation behind every command in this section. Why do we have a joyful attitude when we face trials? Because we love God and He loves us and He will not harm us. Why do we have a submissive will? Because we love Him, and where there's love, there's surrender and obedience. Why do we have a believing heart? Because we love, love and faith go together. Once you love someone, you trust Him. You trust them, and you're not afraid to ask for help. And Christian who loves God, who knows God, will not fall apart when God permits trials to come. They will come. And folks, what I want you to remember from this message is that in this life, in this life, God promise, does not promise us like a calm passage, but he does promise us a safe landing. Trials, you will learn more and more you'll learn than when the sun is shining. Ain't that true? It will also teach you how to deal with other people when they're going through trials and their difficulties. And I want to close with these words from a poem by an unknown author. It says this, I walked a mile with pleasure, she chatted all the way, but made me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, not a word she said, but all of the things I learned from sorrow when sorrow walked with me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you seal this message in our hearts and let us not forget that if you send a trial our way, to look at the end, not the present. It's for our benefit that you will be there to help us along. And now I ask you, Father, that you prepare our hearts for a second part of the service for the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, as we come to